Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today's October 8th, 2020. It is now nine months since the COVID-19 pandemic hit our shores and three months since the beginning of Victoria's second wave. As of yesterday, the pandemic has cost the lives of almost 900 Australians from some 27,000 confirmed cases. Victoria has been experiencing stage four restrictions since early August, and we are increasingly recognising the mental health toll that the restrictions to stop transmission of the virus are taking. While a report from Victoria's coroner recently found no increase in the overall suicide rate in the state, hospital emergency departments, mental health providers and helplines are all reporting unprecedented levels of demand. And Victorians are reporting rates of depression and anxiety at alarming levels. Thankfully, stage four restrictions are halting the spread of the virus. The 14-day average for new cases in metropolitan Melbourne just dipped below 10 for the first time since July, moving Victoria closer to the next step in a roadmap for lifting restrictions. Our guest today is Jill Callister. Jill is the CEO of Mind Australia. Mind is one of the country's largest providers of community-managed mental health services, supporting people dealing with the day-to-day impacts of mental illness, as well as their families and their carers. Before joining mine this year, Jill was an Associate Dean at the Australian New Zealand School of Government and has had an exceptional leadership career in the Victorian public services, including as Secretary of the Department of Education and the Department of Human Services. Jill, thanks for being part of this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Jill, can I start just by asking where we're speaking to you from? What's your remote working setup like and, and how have you found it? Well, I'm speaking to you from suburban Melbourne, where we've been in some sort of restricted access stroke homework, working from home stroke, varying degrees of lockdown since really late March with a kind of slight reprieve late May, early June, which was only partial reprieve and and then we went back into stage three and stage four. So it it feels like most of the year in some form of this or other and of course Melbourne is more restricted than the rest of the country has been so it's been quite quite an experience so far. Do you have a good home office set up? Any distractions coming in? Dogs, cats, things like that? Oh there's a cat that meows at the door at about 4.30 every afternoon wanting to be fed and occasionally walks right across my keyboard (laughs) but you know On a more serious note, I haven't got dependent children, but throughout this whole period, I've worked alongside lots of people who are trying to manage kids at home who aren't going to school, who are trying to learn from home and who are parents who are also trying to get their work done. And honestly, I think the pressure that's put on people is just extraordinary. Trying to manage houses with small children or primary age children who need lots of support with homework or even secondary kids who are stressed about VCE or who are locked away in their rooms and you're not sure what they're doing. I I just think the added pressure on parents has been extraordinary. Well, let's let's start talking about that pressure. Um, As you you mentioned, Melbourne's stage four restrictions, and I guess the longer they go on, the more we're beginning to see the toll that some of these 
measures are taking on the mental health and well-being of Victorians some of the press lately, particularly about women and mothers of young children in particular. From your position, how significant is that mental health crisis and how worried about it should we be? Look, I think we should be worried about it. I think on the plus side, the good thing is we are talking about it. It's interesting how once something happens to all of us, it is okay for all of us to have that conversation. Mental health is one of those difficult conversations where we do talk about it and we worry about it for someone else, but there is still a really great deal of stigma attached to acknowledging mental health issues yourself. And it's quite a significant amount of pressure, I think, that people are often under. So I I think what's good about it is we are all having that conversation and we're having it all the time and we're having it in the media and we're having it in families and we're talking about the pressure and the impact that the whole COVID experience is having. But you have to remember what is driving that. For so for some people, those mental health concerns are coming from the extreme social isolation that a lot of people are living with. For other people, it's the huge uncertainty of the future of work or uncertain housing, of having enough money to feed their families, like that creates enormous pressure for people that most definitely exacerbates mental health concerns and and really pushes at people's resilience. And, of course, a lot of these factors are out of your control. So one of the things that people like to feel is that they have a certain amount of control over how they will deal with problems in their lives and what this particular event has done is take vast amounts of that control away. So the idea I lost my job, well, I'm just going to tread the boards till I get another one. I mean, that isn't actually possible because they're not there or the ones that are there you don't have the skills for or if you have the skills you can't get there because they're in another state. So I, I think those pressures of of not being able to control a lot of things have them go to the very heart of what gives us some sense of security and stability, which is our our employment, our financial situation, our relationships. They're all affected. The other thing I imagine too is is the the places we turn to when when these things do happen. Our you know communities, our families, those sort of things. Having them removed from you as well uh, must compound that a fair bit as well. That those things that give us day to day purpose, even if we are experiencing loneliness or a loss of a job, something like that. Those community resources we normally turn to aren't nearly as available to us during this period. Well, no, they're not. They're definitely not as available, and they're not as available in in that interactive sort of sense. I mean, certainly we've all found the ability to move, to use technology, to connect with people over Zoom, over telehealth, using devices. I think everybody's been surprised at our capacity to adapt and move across to that. What people forget is that some people are not as tech savvy as others. Some people don't actually have access to devices, don't have access to data, don't have the resources to be able to even use those devices to the extent that some of the rest of us can. So while I think in the working world, suddenly the world's shrunk at one level, you know, we're holding webinars with international guests that once we would have had to fly into the country, we found ways to use the technology to connect even the way you and I are now, but not everybody has been able to do that. Not everybody can do that. And some of those people are 
less visible to us. You mentioned parents at the start. You, you also mentioned people losing their job or at risk of doing so. Are there other groups to some extent we're all experiencing this, but also to some extent people's experiences are different, possibly about how secure your employment is or your family arrangements. Are there other groups of people that are particularly on your mind, the, the, the particular focus of this challenge? So the organisation that I head up, Mind, we work with people who have moderate to severe mental illness. So often this is people who have significant mental health challenges and may have them for significant amounts of their lives. And we provide a whole range of different services to support those people. And to some extent, I think there is an element for those people as they hear this broader mental health conversation and this conversation about isolation and pressure, their response to some extent to that is, well, this is how we live all the time. So welcome to our world. Welcome to what we have to live with, except often we're on the margins. And so I think for a lot of people, this broader conversation about mental health is a good thing. I just think we have to remember that for a number of people, they live with a lot of these issues for significant proportions of their lives. And of course, the other really important group here are families and carers. So there are many families and carers who are the primary carers and connectors for people with disabilities or with mental health concerns. And their responsibilities have gone up in COVID because in the in the world where we can't go out to work, where we can't go to groups, where we can't go to support services, the impact on families and carers has gone up. A lot of them have casualised or insecure work that they fit in around their caring responsibilities. And for a lot of those people, that work has had to reduce because their caring responsibilities have gone up. And one of the things we did was two different surveys during COVID. One survey was of families and carers trying to understand the impacts on them. And just a couple of high-level stats, 60% of those families lost the supports for the person they care for. So the external supports that were helping the person they care for disappeared or weren't able to be replaced in some way. And so the impact was fell back on them. And 47% of them lost supports for themselves. So the, the supports in place to help them feel supported in caring for someone with a disability or a serious mental illness weren't available to them. And 44% of them reported time increased time spent on unpaid care. And in the group of people that we surveyed who are people with existing mental health issues, we did this across eight different organisations and we got a sample of a bit over 700 responses, so quite a good response rate. And there was an interesting set of responses. So quite a lot of people reported a serious impact on their physical health. So the, the lack of ability to be out and to be exercising easily and to be able to look after their physical health, CGPs, etc. That was quite a significant impact. But as you would probably expect, some of the biggest impacts were in social isolation. So the lack of connection to others. Quite a lot of people have used telehealth and some support services have been able to provide virtual support groups, but overall people's social isolation has tended to increase. Yes, it certainly sounds that even, even to the extent you can access those things online, they're, not, again, not quite the same and, and you're doing that in the context of 
losing access to all those other supports. The observation about physical health is, of course, something I probably hadn't thought about, but certainly an obvious byproduct as well, being confined indoors and unable to be out in community as much as you would normally be. And physical health, I guess there's two aspects to that. There's quite a lot of discussion publicly at the moment about whether people are ignoring signs and symptoms of physical things that they ought to get checked out, but they have not, either because it's harder to get access to physical health services. Also, some people are really genuinely very scared of the virus and of contracting the virus and so are avoiding health services. But of course, there's that relationship between your mental health and your physical health. And so your ability to look after your physical health tends to have an impact on your mental health in addition. Can you tell us a bit more about carers? You mentioned some of the additional challenges of them. I'd love to hear more about their experience and what you've learned with your clients and their families. Yeah, so the the carer survey was really interesting in that it broke down a lot of the elements that were really causing huge stress to carers and affecting their own mental health. So the financial impacts, and we know there is a, a link between financial security and mental health, but the financial impacts on the pandemic have taken a huge toll on carers' wellbeing. So one one of our carers wrote, I can't sleep because I'm concerned about money, going over and over numbers to make sure I can cover everything and hold it all together. I also feel stressed because I now have no help or support at home and I feel like I'm pulled in many directions. Another person wrote, I'm exhausted and worried about increased costs. I'm not able to go back to work part-time as planned. And another person wrote, the expenses have gone up. I can't go to the shops with my immune-suppressed child, so having to pay extra charges on delivery at home, I'm feeling a lot of financial stress. And then other people felt increased concern for the people they actually cared for. So one person talked about concern about how COVID-19 will affect my daughter's and my husband's health if if they get it, concern about how my daughter will cope with the isolation because she's not having face-to-face support from her mental health services. And someone else talked about, I'm not able to provide the level of support my partner needs due to restrictions on visits. So this would have been someone with um, who cares for a partner who was currently living elsewhere, possibly in hospital. I feel guilty, distraught, tearful, anxious. I fear his health will deteriorate more rapidly due to the lack of support that he's getting from me. So the impact on carers was both about their concern for those they care for, but also the reduced support to them meant increased pressure for them and particularly increased financial pressure. And and that financial pressure, I think, is one of the things that isn't going to go away for a lot of people once we move out of the crisis period. That is potentially got very enduring impacts on people's mental health. That is heartbreaking. And just hearing the compounding of issues as well, the, the way that those challenges build on top of each other to create environments. Huge challenge. Yeah, and I think that was probably the biggest story that came out of the carer survey was those compounding factors. These are people who already live with reasonably high levels of stress and reasonably high levels of resilience. And as long as they get some support around them, I think they do an unbelievable job. But start to chip away at that, particularly from multiple sides, and you leave people 
really exposed. I wonder, from your perspective, how hopeful then you are as hopefully Victoria is moving pretty closely towards lifting restrictions, the next step of the roadmap a, a week or so away. Does it feel like a bounce back recovery in relation to that side of things? Or are you worried about the sort of longer term impact on both, I guess, your clients, but also the wider community's mental health? Cast your mind forward about how, how long this effects will be with us for, do you think? I have thought about that. I think we all think about that. And it is interesting here in Victoria, we are so starkly different to the rest of the country. There's lots of meetings I have because MIND is a national organisation. I'm also involved uh, on a couple of boards that are national. It's interesting to get into virtual meetings with people in other parts of the country where things have returned at least almost to normal and people are out and about and kind of living with the spectre of COVID but not locked down because of it. And Victoria, it's just gone on so long that I think the kind of notion of when we're going to start emerging out of this feels just constantly slightly out of reach to be honest. I think, though, the big issue is how do we move forward in what is going to be a significant recession? So yes, we can come out of lockdown and yes, move around more freely. But there's all that talk about zombie businesses, what businesses will come back and what won't, what impacts will the federal budget this week have on changed employment patterns? How do the people who were receiving the increased JobKeeper Uh, or job seeker, sorry, rate who are going back to a much smaller amount in an environment where the unemployment rates will be much higher than they even were before. What happens to those people? You know, some of the welfare agencies around Melbourne have seen whole new cohorts of people coming for financial support, relief, financial counselling, ranges of services that they never expected to seek, let alone seek from a a welfare agency. And so the cohorts of people they're dealing with and the range of services they're trying to respond with are quite um, different. For some of um, our current clients, I would hope that quite a lot of the support services available to them can return relatively easily. But I think we're yet to see the longer-term impacts of people living with high levels of financial insecurity, housing insecurity, both of which we know have an impact on your mental health. And, of course, your mental health then in turn has an impact on your ability to deal with those issues. So if if you've got severe mental health impacts from all of that, then being able to make your way out of it and into a financially sustainable, you know, having a job, having having a house, feeding your kids, those things become harder and harder when you're overwhelmed by the size of the problem. So what I worry about now is the impact of the recovery and whether we can make sure everybody gets a piece of recovery and who is going to get left behind. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that if we, I mean, we don't have that many recessions in Australia's recent history to learn from, but the ones that we do say that there are certainly groups of people that take a long time to recover from in that sense and could be with us for quite some time. I wonder if I could turn us to to mind and some of your services. It's been an extraordinary period for service providers of all all types. How have you managed to keep your services going in in a physically distant world? 
Well, a lot of our services have remained in place at the front line. So we run a lot of supported independent living, which is essentially houses in the community where groups of people live with rostered staffing models of different kinds, providing support and care to people. We run a number of subacute services, so people in more serious episodes of mental illness needing, again, living for very short periods in in accommodation staffed by specialist staff who work with them, with our clinical partners in the health services and a range of other frontline services that have had to continue throughout the crisis. There's been a lot of recognition throughout this crisis of our frontline health staff and that's great. It's really important. It's great that we're recognising doctors and nurses and people in hospitals, but we do tend to forget there are other pretty heroic staff that go to work day in, day out, carry their permits, you know, don't miss their rosters. We, we haven't seen large amounts of our staff not showing up to work because they're worried about catching COVID. We've seen people unbelievably committed going to work on rosters right across Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, and providing support and care that has its challenges at the best of times. But in these times is additionally challenging because the residents in those houses, of course, have to behave like the rest of us. They have to stay within five kilometres. They have to wear masks. They have to comply with all the government's rules. I think it's been really challenging for our frontline staff and they have kept on going and providing a really, really high quality service. A lot of the rest of our services, we've had to move to a telehealth environment and to a virtual environment. And of course, like everyone, I think we've discovered some really important things about that. We've discovered it is possible and it changes the service, but it doesn't necessarily make it worse. Some people don't like it. You know, there are definitely people in the survey that told us they don't like using telehealth. It feels impersonal. It feels exhausting. They don't like being on the phone. But other people, I think have actually found it made services more accessible. People who might sit at home and think twice about getting on the tram or the bus or the train to head to their support group have been able to dial into it and have actually found the barrier to getting there was overcome by being able to do it from home. So people have discovered new things. I think it's tested our staff thinking about how you use those modes of service delivery because you don't have quite the same non-verbal cues to pick up on. It's not quite the same interaction, is it? I mean, we, I, I even notice it in meetings. You don't get all the side chat. It's more formal. It's a little bit more stilted. But I think over time people will get better at it. And I do think it's one of the learnings out of COVID. I, I think we will go back to face-to-face service delivery, but I think we will mix it up with this form of service delivery in a more agile way than we probably ever thought we would. Those staff that are still working face-to-face, it's it's an extraordinary challenge around uh, equipment and cleaning practice changes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, your point around the courage and heroics of those people who continue to deliver such important services during this time? What is the major change in the way services delivered in terms of equipment and and staying distance? Yeah, I think I think it's been really challenging in some of the residential houses to socially distance. We had to train our staff in the use of PPE and in a couple of houses we've had staff have, have to go into full PPE because of having clients who are close contacts of others. We've had people have to be tested, have to come up with quite 
innovative ways of dealing with complex situations. We had one house where one of the residents needed to stay in the house for a period of time that the house was self-isolating. It didn't end up having COVID, but there'd been a possibility. And this was a, a, a client who found staying at home extraordinarily difficult. The staff set up a makeshift office virtually in a cupboard outside the client's room and every time he left the room they used it as an engagement opportunity to work with him to engage him to divert him to other activities and to essentially work to keep him safe keep the house safe keep the community safe it didn't involve detention and it didn't involve coercion it was people using their skills in a very complex environment and their skills and engagement to work with someone under very complex circumstances. I'm trying to be not too identifying here for obvious privacy reasons, but, you know, I was really impressed with the efforts that staff went to to contain what was a difficult situation. Yeah, that's that's extraordinarily difficult, yeah. And, you know, a lot of that work sort of really happens under our social radar yeah, you mentioned before the attention to frontline health services. I think some of these stories are not as prominent. Yeah, and of course we've seen, I mean, in who gets COVID, we've seen so much the structure of the economy and the structure of certain industries, low-paid, highly casualised, low-education-level work, cleaners, security guards, people who have to work on in multiple settings, often in multiple types of roles to be able to maintain a living and the risk that has ultimately posed not just to themselves and the community but to the the people they often look after and as we've seen the virus play out in aged care in disability care and through the security industry. I wonder if I can ask you about your experience so you began the leadership of mine during this pandemic amazing time to take leadership of an organisation Tell us about being a leader of a large national organisation, particularly starting in. How's the experience of you as a remote leader beginning your time in an organisation in such an extraordinary period? Look, it's not ideal. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> if, I was to, if I was given a choice, I wouldn't choose it. And, and for, particularly for someone who is quite a, I'm quite a people person, I, I prefer to talk and engage with people than to write lots of emails. So it's at one level, it's fine. You meet people, you read stuff, you you engage with issues. It definitely takes longer. Productivity-wise, There's apart from the commute, it's harder because everything is so linear. You know, it's there's no sense of being able to take 10 minutes and walk through an office and chat to five different people and have two different ideas or ask a couple of people to catch up later about X or Y. You've got to write all that down. My desk is covered in coloured sticky notes, which are piled on, piled on, piled at the moment, trying to remember all the things I need to do. And But everything involves another phone call or another email or another Zoom meeting. So I find it quite linear. It's very hard to get a sense of the culture of an organisation this way. I think if you already know an organisation, you're already well-versed in it, it's different but I've talked to a few other people who've started jobs in lockdown in Victoria in particular and you just don't get that cultural feel it's really really hard to do and probably my biggest issue is not being able to visit those frontline services so I haven't been able to visit any of them three months into any job particularly one that runs a whole heap of service delivery 
sites, I would have talked to clients, I would have talked to frontline staff, I would have walked around, I would have have a I would have a both visual picture and a mental map of how the organization operates. But it feels a bit like doing a new job with one hand you know, over one eye, it just feels like you're doing it partially blind. And that's frustrating. It's not impossible, but it to some extent feels like it's slower and harder to get that cultural sense. I think that's a great observation and undeniable. It's sort of something you can't ignore, is it, that you are, you know, at the other end of a line, you're not there and face-to-face and that's important. There is this odd equalising notion to it though as well. So I find that my directors in Queensland and South Australia both say they feel it's a more equal environment now because they would tend to beam into meetings where everyone would be sitting in a room in Melbourne and they would be coming through the video and they always felt a bit removed and like the people in the Melbourne Melbourne were in the real meeting and they were just sort of like they were a bit marginal. They feel it's a much more equal environment and another organisation I'm involved with on the board described the same thing that now that we're all on the screen, the people who used to be on the screen don't feel on the outer. They feel like we're kind of in the one virtual room, which is a really interesting dynamic I honestly wouldn't have predicted. That's super interesting. I wonder too how much even just interpersonal dynamics that can happen in you know large board meetings or whatever. There's often a dominant personality, something like that. I wonder to what extent all being the same size on a little screen, how much does that equalise things? Yeah, I was talking to someone where they'd been trying to embed a national model. So, you know, kind of instead of a in a national organisation, having teams, you know, spread nationally doing the same function, but with a team leader in one jurisdiction, they've been struggling with the culture of that for months and months and months. And overnight, it's become something people can do because suddenly they feel like they're on a level playing field. It's a really interesting dynamic and certainly when I was at ANSOG before I started at Mind and we had to take all our professional development and leadership executive leadership delivery into an online environment international speakers that we once only would have used if we'd brought them to Australia and if we had said to people come and sit in a room and listen to them but they'll be beamed in from a video we would have decided was you know poor quality and will it hold people's attention suddenly we were able to use people from all over the world and maintain people's attention I mean who hasn't been to a webinar since COVID started Mm -hmm. about something we've definitely learned stuff about using this environment effectively I suppose one of the biggest challenges though is during a crisis leaders need to be present don't they They need to be visible and and present in their organizations how have you tried to do that without being able to be physically present well I've tried to do that in the usual ways of trying to translate the things I would have done anyway but do them virtually so join each of the executives their own teams and and meet with them just trying to really amp up the virtual presence in as many meetings as possible it is interesting how That's been very difficult even to do virtually down at the front line. And it's really exposed the fact that like in many organisations, even service delivery ones, we often, we look after the central office people with resources like IT and tech resources better than we look after the front line as a rule. And that was always my experience in government. You know, the head office would be much better serviced than the, the regions. So you know, one of the things on my agenda really early is to fix that, 
make sure that we've got laptops, that we've got connectivity, that I can do a virtual meeting and tour of a frontline service if I needed to, because that's really been an element of exposure and I suspect one in, in many cases. I remember visiting years and years ago when I was Secretary of DHS, one of the smaller offices that we operated in country Victoria and discovering that the child protection team there, there was only one government car for the whole office. And of course, child protection workers need to use government cars, particularly in towns where everybody mostly knows them anyway. And because there was only one government car, they used to sit down at the beginning of the week and schedule all their appointments to their families around each other so that they were scheduling them around the car, which used to take them, you know, a couple of hours, a ridiculous waste of time. And I was on this tour around Victoria for a few days visiting offices and talking to people. And I remember ringing one of the deputies in head office on my way from this town to the next saying, get those people another car. I don't care what you do, just take it out of the head office pool. Because of course, in head office, we had endless pools of cars that sat in the, sit in the car park yeah sat in the car park you know waiting for some vps6 to get in a car to drive to geelong to do a contract meeting or something like that and but we had these poor people who just got used to their lot in life as frontline staff that they had to put up with only having one car and they were so amazingly grateful when really they should have been outraged that we made them work with one car for so long but you do see genuinely you see that repeated in frontline services all the time. And times like this is no doubt where those things become particularly apparent, right? Particularly significant for how much we're relying on them in in this unique time. Jill, in the midst of all this, there is also an ongoing Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. I wonder if you had any observations about the process of that so far and, and where you think the commission might be headed and what are some of the most important issues that you think it's grappling with before it releases its second report later this year? Well, look, I think it's a great thing that we have the Royal Commission doing the work on on mental health in Victoria. At one level, you know, something extraordinary about the fact that we needed a Royal Commission into mental health, because I think a lot of what the Royal Commission will be told won't be unbelievably new. It will be information that people across many parts of the mental health research, delivery, service sectors will have been saying to governments, to health services, to, well, to government really, for a very long time. I think it tells you something about the place of mental health that they we need a royal commission to deal with these issues. I don't think we'll ever have a royal commission into cancer because cancer is dealt with by governments maybe not as well as people would like, but it is funded and it is, uh, there is research and there is progress and there is change. And the fact that we need a Royal Commission to deal with what I think a lot of people across the sector, they might not all agree on the proportions and they might not all agree on where you might invest first or second, but they would all agree that it's something that should be part of the normal business of government. And the fact that our policy, our delivery our attention, our understanding of it as a system has just fallen behind to the point where it's something of a crisis that needs a Royal Commission response is something I hope never happens again. I hope that it is part of the normal business of government in a much more genuine way than I think it probably has been. Having said that, 
it would be terrific to see some big step change opportunities out of this. Sometimes, you know, service delivery policy royal commissions end up with so many stakeholders lobbying them that everybody wants a piece. It would be great, I hope, to see the Royal Commission say, here are the big changes that should be made to really free up and move, create a better system. So the architecture around mental health, I think, is very fragmented. Uh, And then I would say there are a few key areas that I hope there is much more strategic investment in particularly children and young people. I, you know, I think it's a well-known stat that 75% of mental illness emerges between the ages of 12 and 25. And that is still a great opportunity to both deal with those issues and for those people to still have a good life. Like your mental health issues don't have to dominate the rest of your life. But I think Unlike so many other health conditions where your health condition gets dealt with in such a way, your diabetes, your your treatment for various things in such a way as you can go on and live your life, even if you're living with that chronic illness, mental health often comes to dominate the identity of people or change the trajectory of their life in a way that I don't think it entirely has to. So we get too focused on the presence or, or absence of symptoms and not focused enough on once you've dealt with those, how do you help people have a life, particularly those young people who have an entire life ahead of them. So I think some of those reframes investments in not just service delivery, but the future of service delivery, research, interventions, community platforms, I think I would hope we get some big step changes like that. My guest today has been Jill Callister from Mind Australia. Jill, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you, Tom.